Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. On today's show, we're going to talk about Ubisoft messing around with AI. We're going to talk about the Unreal Editor for Fortnite, and then we're going to wrap it up with yet another episode discussing Microsoft's Activision Blizzard acquisition. But first, I want to quickly talk about Resident Evil so the remake looks to be the franchise's biggest launch. Uh, Steam saw over 125,000 concurrent PC players on launch day. Compare that to Resident Evil Village, which previously held the record with 106,000 players on its launch day. Remember, that's just concurrent players. Doesn't mean that they only sold 125,000 copies on Steam, right? That's just a. Uh, it's just uh, the amount of people that were online at the exact same time playing the game. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to quickly talk about Resident Evil 4. So last week, I, I feel like I played two very incredible video games for two incredibly different reasons and also just two completely different games, which was Chia, which was a uh, indie game that released on PS4, PS5, and PC last week. Uh, definitely check it out, especially if you are a PlayStation Plus member, as it is included in the extra and above membership, not for the essential. That was amazing. Definitely one of my favorite games of the year. And then, of course, there was Resident Evil 4. And you know, it's, it's so funny because I was thinking back to when I first played Resident Evil 4, which I believe was 2005, was when it first released on Nintendo GameCube. And I remember, obviously, there was so much hype and so much excitement for that game releasing for so many different reasons, not just that it was Capcom and, you know, the sequel to, the you know, just the latest Resident Evil, that alone gave it so much hype. But, of course, all the previews, talking about going into this brand new direction. And you put all that together and then you add it on top of it being a GameCube exclusive, which was such a big, big deal. And I think exclusivity has obviously still continued to be a hot topic, you know, over a decade later. But during that moment in time when Resident Evil was so closely connected to the PlayStation brand to find out that that game was going to be a GameCube exclusive was such a huge, huge win for Nintendo for so many reasons, right? It it, um, it was kind of their way of showing their customers like, hey, GameCube is not just for kids. And that game was kind of one of those big things that they were pushing when it came to that initiative. And then, of course, we had the infamous Capcom 5, which I think the fifth was Dark Phoenix that never came out. But the Capcom 5, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was Resident Evil 4. It was Beautiful Joe, Piano 3, and I cannot remember what the other one was, unfortunately, <laughs> off the top of my head. Uh, I'm going to have to look this up because if not, then it's going to kill me uh, that I do not remember what the other game was. Killer 7. How could I forget about Killer 7? Yeah, so those were like what, what, what was considered back in the day, the Capcom 5. These were the five games that Capcom announced that were exclusive for GameCube. And obviously, as time went on, they, they did not remain exclusive. I think the only one was PNO3. I don't think that ever came out on another console. 
But yeah, you know, Resident Evil 4 for me, ever since playing on GameCube, I've purchased it and played through it multiple times. Uh, that was the, obviously the GameCube version a few times, the PlayStation 2 version when it came out, played that through that a few times, did it again, I think on the Xbox 360. And then very recently I purchased and played through it again on PC because the game was, was like five bucks, some crazy sale. I downloaded the the fan-made HD project, which is just amazing. Definitely go check it out. They also add like a lot of um, quality of life improvements to the game, including being able to use the number pad to switch weapons. I'm not, I think that's something that was exclusive to that HD version. That was one of the QOL updates. I'm not sure if the Capcom HD version has that as an option, but Regardless, it, it makes the game a lot better than having to constantly open up the case in order to switch weapons uh, like we all had to do when the GameCube version came out. So ever since that game came out in 2008, I've gone through it multiple times. It's definitely been a permanent part of my top five favorite games of all time. Uh, you know, I, I know Resident Evil 4 like the back of my hand. So I was definitely, obviously, very excited for this game to come out. And I played through the story once. I'm going back through it again, kind of going through some of the challenges. Like right now, I'm going through the pistol and knife only run. I'm about to finish that one off. And it, it's just, it's, it's honestly really insane to love a game for, for, for so long. And then have a company look at that game, understand that there's so much excitement surrounding Resident Evil 4. It was a game that, looking back at it, it was something that did absolutely change the industry. It's one of those games, whether you like it or not, you have to acknowledge that Resident Evil 4 was a video game changer. So for Capcom to look at that game and say to themselves, man, this, this you know, maybe we want to mess with it. Or maybe we don't want to spend as much money on it. Let's just bring it into the new engine, up-res everything, and just release it. And they could have done that, and it, it, I still would have appreciated it. I still would have enjoyed it. But you had this team that looked at this game that has been on so many top 10 lists, that have been given so many perfect scores across the years. It's a game that people still refer to as one of the best games that uh, you know our industry has ever released. And you looked at that game, you say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to break this thing down and we're going to rebuild it. And we're going to we're going to create another perfect action game. <laughs> and then they went ahead and did exactly that. They took away all the pain points from the original game. They fleshed out, you know, every single character was way more fleshed out, especially Leon, especially Ashley, especially Luis. Um, they added more segments to, so you can, you know, interact and learn more about Luis, which was something I was very, very happy about. Even Krauser felt a lot more fleshed out. Same thing with Sadler and Salazar. Um, all the cuts, in my opinion, were appropriate. I don't want to spoil it just in case anyone wants to go in fresh like me, which I would definitely suggest if you're a Resident Evil 4 fan, do not get it spoiled. Just go back in fresh. It's definitely the best way to experience the game. Um, 
But there honestly hasn't been a single change in the game where I'm going, oh, that's unfortunate they changed that. That's unfortunate they did that or kept that. Or it it it's it's mind blowing. It really is mind blowing to play through that game again. And for me now to feel like, holy crap, in my personal top five, definitely top 10, I will have to sit back down and think about it. But definitely in my top 10, Resident Evil 4 is now in there twice. Because this game, and that's the other thing that I'm loving about this remake, is that it's it's more of like a reimagining. It's it's not a replacement for the original. It's not something where you can recommend this remake to someone and they can walk away and say, okay, cool, I've played Resident Evil 4 finally. It's like, no, they're actually, I, I would consider them two completely different games. Like, the skeleton exists in both of them in terms of some of the story beats and some of the beats going through in sequence, but they're so completely different that you can't play this new one and just say, yeah, I, I, I've played. It's not the same as like Mafia. Like Mafia is definitely in a, one, one of the, the amazing games that I talk about when I talk about this industry. And I could go to someone and say, oh, you don't have to get the original PC version, just get the definitive version. And it's the same game, but it's modernized. This game is completely different in my mind. Like I said, some of the beats are there. Some of the things are very familiar, uh, especially for people like me that have played through the original like 20 times. Um, but yeah, what, what this team has been able to accomplish with Resident Evil 4 is mind-blowing to me. Like I remember when the reviews were coming out and there were 10s being thrown around. I was just like, wow, is it possible that these guys actually did it again? At that moment, I didn't read a single Resident Evil 4 review because, once again, I didn't want any of the changes spoiled for me. Um, but, yeah, this is a game that, just like the original, I'm very excited to run back through the game multiple times using some of the special weapons, the fun weapons. I'd, I honestly don't know if I'm going to go for that professional trophy. <laughs> this game is really tough. Uh, but you know, I guess eventually I, I might go through, go back through it very, very slowly, but yeah, I mean, like, it, it's just amazing. It's, it really is something to love a game and then have that company go ahead and say, yeah, we're going to rebuild this. We're going to, we're going to do it again instead of taking the route that so many other companies have taken, which is, wow, we see that remakes and remasters are hot. Let's just outsource this, let's up-res it, let's bring it to a new engine, and then just kind of walk away from it. It's it's really cool to see some companies really go above and beyond. Um, take two with Mafia Definitive, they went above and beyond. They, you know, they broke everything down, they re-recorded everything, new cutscenes, new dialogue, new voice actors, on top of just it technically being of this age. You know, same thing could be said with obviously what EA did with Dead Space and with what Activision did with Tony Hawk instead of just going the remaster route of like, yeah, we're going to make it look good and some quality of life changes, but we're not going to go that far as to saying, how would this game look if we went ahead and made it uh, completely from scratch in the year, in, in the 2020s compared to the 2000s, right? So yeah, I, I just wanted to, get that opinion across that Capcom somehow did this twice. I, I still can't believe that they did it.
On to our next story about Ubisoft. So last week, Ubisoft announced an AI writing tool called Ghostwriter, created to cut down on the amount of time teams spend writing barks or what NPC dialogue is heard when players pass them by. So that's what they mean by barks. You know, when you walk by uh, and bump into someone in Grand Theft Auto, you're just walking by and you hear them having a small conversation on the telephone. Those are, are what are considered barks. So the process, according to Ubisoft, is that it begins with human input and the AI assists in perfecting the lines to get them ready for recording. It can also create conversations between multiple characters. Ubisoft was, of course, quickly attacked by fans, and the YouTube video currently has 1.1 thousand likes to 4.8 thousand dislikes. Sony Santa Monica writer Alana Pierce wrote, quote, as a writer, having to edit AI-generated scripts slash dialogue sounds far more time-consuming than just writing my own temp lines. I would far prefer AAA studios use whatever budget it costs to make tools like this to instead hire more writers. And AI is obviously a very, very touchy subject. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know how much I love existing in the middle of all these topics and looking at this from a very, very different angle. Number one, I believe that if any, first of all, this happened at GDC, the Game Developers Conference that took place last week. I believe that there are only a handful of companies that could make an announcement like this and get instantly dragged through the mud. And that's Ubisoft is definitely one of them. I feel like if we heard the same thing from Bethesda, for example, I don't think they would have gotten dragged as much. I think a lot of people would have looked at this tool, um, heard that uh, announcement, and maybe someone from Bethesda explaining it. And I think more people would have walked away from that and said to themselves, oh, cool. So this is definitely going to speed up the process for writers. It's, good. it's just going to make things a lot easier, right? And I think because it was Ubisoft that did it, and they are definitely on the chaotic evil side of video game publishers, I think that's why so many people were that much quicker to basically uh, hang them <laughs> publicly for this announcement. I think that Bethesda would have still have gotten some negative feedback from, from fans and, and you know they probably still would have been trending on Twitter, but I don't think it would have been as bad. And I think that speaks more about Ubisoft as a company more than it is this actual tool that they built. Because the problem is that on the surface... This, to me personally, sounds like a good idea. I understand what um, Alana says in terms of like, well, I think it would, I would spend, it would take me way more time editing and rewriting those temporary lines than me coming up with the ideas um, myself. But there's a part of me that sort of disagrees with that uh, or partially disagrees with it because I think she does bring up a really good point, which is that, in its current state, AI is not super great. Even ChatGPT makes mistakes. And some of these other tools like Google's Bard are just borderline unusable. It's just really, this is really, really bad. 
And but the thing about it is that the AI is like if you're building this tool using AI and machine learning, the AI is only going to get better. So if you do input an AI and create a writing tool for for um you know a writing team in a video game studio and you're able to feed the AI your um entire world in terms of not only just lore, dialogue, story beats and have that run through the machine, I think at some point that AI will be able to spit back smarter and smarter lines. At the beginning, it's probably going to be really, really stupid, especially because the machine learning is going to have to rely on writing that's already been input by a human. The thing about this, though, is that I think everyone understands that when you think about a company like Ubisoft, you understand that it's hard to believe that Ubisoft would stop here, that Ubisoft would say to themselves, hey guys, we're creating this tool. It's not going to replace any writers, but it's going to make their life a lot easier. And I think that in some aspects, AI has done that across our industry, right? Even something as simple as, you know, removing an object or tracking an object on a video, like when I personally edit myself, um, or having to use masks to uh, painstakingly draw around an object in order to erase it from an image. Now we have content-aware fills. We have um, tools where you can use a brush and just brush over a car, and all of a sudden, in, in less than a minute, that car is completely gone from the entire video. That, to me, is not AI replacing a video editor. That is AI saving that video editor like half an hour. And I wish that we could look at these tools the same way. I wish that we, our industry was a lot more forward-thinking uh, than it currently is. But Ubisoft is one of those companies that it's impossible to believe that this is sort of the end for them and not just the beginning where they're looking at this is like, yeah, this is a cool tool. Guys keep using it so the machine learning can work better and, and it can get smarter. And then maybe at some point us in Ubisoft can go around the table, feed an AI every single Assassin's Creed game ever made and say, hey, can you create a brand new Assassin's Creed? And it might sound kind of crazy on the surface, but seeing everything that I like seeing the leap from GPT three to chat GPT four for me makes it feel like, yeah, this is very possible. The other thing is if you look at mid journey, which is the AI photo creation tool, when you look at mid journey five compared to mid journey one, two, three, where it could barely draw a hand. The one thing I've noticed about AI is that it seems to be accelerating at a pretty fast pace. <laughs> and it's, I, I think, obviously I'm not a technical person, but I think it's really a lot of the machine learning. The AI is able to learn. And obviously these people that are building these tools are learning themselves and they're able to create a lot more efficiency. So I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that at some point, since Ubisoft owns... Assassin's Creed, and I'm sure by extent they own all the dialogue, they own all the scripts, all the scripts, all the writing. What would stop them from even saying like, "Hey, we're going to remake the original Assassin's Creed" and feeding the entire script through an AI and say, "Hey, we're going to do a remake. We need you to switch up some of these scenes." Instead of 
us looking at this positively and saying, man, this will be a great tool to help, you know, fight crunch, for example. I it, it just it sucks that we can't look at this type of stuff that way, right? It sucks that we look at these advances in AI and because of the capitalistic nature of businesses, especially here in the United States of America, it's impossible to think that a good chunk of business owners that are looking at these tools are not already looking at ways to use them to replace human beings because the AI doesn't take a sick day. It doesn't need parental leave, right? Uh, it doesn't need to clock out. The AI can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, pumping out barks and dialogue uh, and all this different stuff. Or maybe it's, man, we need, you know, the next, I, I guess I'll, I'll continue using Ubisoft as an example. The next Assassin's Creed is coming out. Was was it the, the Assassin's Creed, the, the Japan one, Assassin's Creed Red is coming out. Can we use mid-journey and AI to just, hey, can you pump out a thousand cosmetic ideas, right? <laughs> um, like, yeah, maybe, maybe I might need the, the, the technical engineers in order to make it work, but I no longer need concept artists or artists because they can come up with this stuff. This is really one of those things where, um, within our, in, in, you know, workers within our industry are going to have to try to nip this in the bud. Now, I think the writers guild of America that represents the motion picture association. I don't know if they, I don't, I don't know if the same applies for video game writers. I know that very recently they've been putting forth, um, creating new contracts to ensure that their previous work cannot be used to, um, Sorry, their previous work cannot be used to feed an AI. Basically, an AI cannot use their previous work for their own machine learning without proper attribution to the original writers. And I think it, there's something along the lines of like, they're putting something together to sort of try to ensure that they're not replaced um, by machines. And, you know, there are some companies that seem to sort of be doing things the right way. I think Adobe is doing their own um, sort of photo creation tool, but I think that the photo creation AI that they have does not learn across the spectrum of every image on the internet. I think it, it only learns from, um, you know, copyright free content stuff in Adobe's own stock photo, things that they have the actual licenses to. So it seems that there are some companies that are trying to, to, to sort of draw the lines, but this is one of those things where it's like, if workers don't draw the lines <laughs> and um, it, it's it's going to become very, very difficult for everyone involved in the future. I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, like if I find out that a majority or a very good chunk of a video game, it uses AI and that AI has been proven. Let's say there's some sort of studio leak. Someone talks to Jason Schreier and they're saying like, yeah, we, you know, five jobs were cut because th those jobs were created by this AI. And that AI is actually writing a lot of the story that you're going to experience in that game. Or that AI was responsible for a lot of the concept art or the art in the game. I'm, I'm, I'm not interested in playing that video game. Like, I don't think I'm interested in giving that company any money because I don't, I think that AI is a tool that 
could and should be used in our industry. And I know that there are a lot of companies that will use it this way, right? Which is a tool in order to lessen crunch, in order to make things easier, quicker, faster. The same way that AI has done a lot for us in our everyday lives to make it easier. Um, you know, whether it's video editing or writing up a document or, or whatever, what have you. But a world where AI replaces actual human beings in a video game studio, as a consumer, I'm not really interested in that. The problem, though, is that there are a lot of companies that I feel like we can we can sort of trust that that won't happen. Like if Nintendo announced this, I'd be like, oh, cool. This is a great tool for their writers. There's not a part of me that ever would foresee personally that Nintendo would replace their employees with machines. I just kind of can't see that happening at a company like Nintendo. But could I see it happening at Ubisoft? Could I see it happening at Square Enix? Maybe even EA? Yeah, I probably would and could see something like that happening. Our next story deals with Fortnite. So at last week's Game Developers Conference, Epic Games held their yearly state of Unreal. They showed off a bunch of updates to the engine, including a pretty mind-blowing capture performance scan of Hellblade 2. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember the actress's name because I just saw like kind of a clip of what was happening. I didn't watch the State of Unreal live because let's be honest, as exciting as it is for a gamer, a lot of it is for people that use Unreal. I don't, <laughs> right? I'm not technical in that way. But they sort of showed an update to their performance capture and it was all done with an iPhone and just a machine, right? Where uh, she gave this little performance with an, with an iPhone capturing her performance. And then I think it was like three minutes or something like that. It was able to render a full 3D model, a pretty expressive 3D model of the performance that she just gave. So, you know, that's a perfect example of a company using AI to make things quicker, faster, cheaper. Do I believe that that process means that now two people, three people got their jobs replaced? No. What that means is that my current team, instead of it taking an hour to render that facial performance, now they can do it in three minutes. And we save cost and money because we're using smaller, lighter equipment, right? So that's a good example of AI being used for good. But, um, you know, the biggest story of the show was the announcement of the Unreal Editor for Fortnite, a PC application for creating and publishing games and experiences directly into Fortnite. Epic said it will put 40% of the net revenue from Fortnite's item shop and related real money purchases into an engagement pool and make payouts monthly. So what that means is that if you create, if you make a creation, you can use a code to share it. And I think that they are sort of categorized as islands. I think it's like you share, you're sharing an island. So you're sharing, sharing a creation that you made. Depending on how many people frequent that creation every month, you'll get uh, a chunk of that pool that they set aside each month. So basically what they're doing is that when you buy an item from Fortnite, when you buy something off the Fortnite shop, they're putting aside 40% of that revenue at the end of every month, whatever that 40% net revenue comes out up to whatever $20 million. I don't know. Uh, definitely not that much, but um, 
that will be dedicated in its entirety to the creations. So even if it's just a few visits a, uh, a month, I think you get something. But obviously, if a lot of people visit it per month, then you get a bigger part of that payout, which is honestly extremely generous, right? We're talking about 40% of the net revenue. Like, yes, it's, it's not the majority. 60% still goes to Epic Games. But I feel like Epic could have easily just said 20%. And I think people would have been like, oh, that's pretty cool. Even 30, 40% is extremely generous. It really shows that they really want people to come forward and try to create new things. And they put out some samples. Unfortunately, I haven't had the time to download it and try it out and go through it. But I will say this much. If you've been listening to this podcast, you knew that this was going to happen two years ago because I said, I 100% said this was going to happen. It was in the episode that's called, uh, I think it was called Enter. No, no, no it was called Epic Metaverse. And I, I dedicated that entire episode talking about a theory that I had that Epic Games, everything that they're doing with Fortnite is all a test for their own individual metaverse. And I said that at some point, especially these were, Tim Sweeney's own words, Tim Sweeney at one point had said that one of the most important parts of a metaverse is going to be UGC or user generated content because a metaverse must have a virtual economy that closely resembles a physical economy in order for the metaverse to actually be able to stay together, to exist, to work right? When you think about a real world economy, it's not something where every single piece of clothing is created by, you know, these big companies, right? Gucci, Zara, H&M, or every single plush toy is made by Disney. Like, yes, they have their own intellectual property, but anybody can begin a business as long as you have the funds to start it. When it comes to user generated content in a metaverse, you're going to need it in order to reflect a real world economy. You cannot create a metaverse and have it rely 100% on companies creating things in order to keep it going and in order to continue fueling it. And I think that this is one of another one of those steps that I had spoke about when I talked about that epic metaverse two years ago, which is this is the beginning is just a test to see how many people will create, what are they able to create? And I looked through a few videos of people running through this unreal editor It's definitely not a pick up and play kind of thing. It has its own coding language called verse. And you can tell that it is highly customized. Like Epic did, everything that they could in order to be able to let people create something very quickly and get it off the ground. But it's also, you know, I guess it's like easier to learn, hard to master where it's, it's one of those things where if you really want to create something very elaborate, then it's going to take you a lot of time. You're really going to have to learn that engine. And I was watching someone run through it and they were using things from the fab marketplace was the marketplace that Epic had created. Um, 
the same marketplace that anyone that's creating a video game that's published on console, for example, they could use that marketplace in order to either acquire things for free. So a model of an Apple or a house or something like that. But then they also have items on there that you can pay for in order to bring them into your your video game. So a lot of it, when I was watching someone go through tutorials, some of it was drag and drop. Like they were picking up a barn and then you can sort of customize it a bit. You can actually drop into the game, take control of, of you know, a Fortnite character and be able to walk through your creation and do some light editing. So you can look at a truck and say, it would be cool to have another truck here. You could walk up to that truck, copy it to a number key and then walk somewhere else, hit that number key, and then it drops that item into the world. And then from there, you can freely move it. But then there is also very complex stuff. So changing the textures on the ground, raising it. Um, well, the stuff that I see. Um, changing the, the, the textures, the materials, that's when it re gets really, really complex. But it, it really is, I look at it as like the, the first step. And it's something that, there's no way this is the end of it. I'm sure that Epic wants to get this editor to a point where it's a lot easier. And the way to do that is going to be AI. Because if, if there's something that ChatGPT, a lot of people have seen in terms of like cutting the amount of time to do things, coding has been one of the big things where you can go into ChatGPT and you can say, code me a website for creating healthy vegetarian recipes and they'll be able to code it. And then you can have a conversation with the AI and say, you know, change the background to pink, make this header a little bit bigger. Can we get a different font? It's not very easy to read. And it can, you can go back and forth with the AI. I'm sure that Epic is already researching ways to do that for something like an Unreal Editor for Fortnite, where you can say, I would really like to get a dragon in here and it can go into the fab marketplace, find a dragon. And maybe from there you can say, hey, can instead of four legs can only have three or something like that. And it, it, it'll be able to to do that. Or you be able to, to, to type into an Unreal AI and say, you know, um, write me a script where if I get five headshots in a row, a rocket launcher drops from the ceiling, you know, Th those are things that all, all have to be coded and handwritten. But if they're able to combine this somehow with AI in, in some way, then you could see how it could get a lot simpler and a lot easier for people to be able to, um, to create things. Because as I, as I said before, Fortnite, I feel like really started as just a video game. But after some time, I, I think that Tim Sweeney and his team, Tim Sweeney, Mark Rain, and the rest of the team really started to understand, like, we have something really special on our hands. And there are so many reasons why Fortnite is such an impressive product for our industry that on the surface, I think a lot of people... Sometimes I feel like Fortnite doesn't get the respect it deserves. It's one of those games that I personally have no interest in playing. I'm just, I'm personally not a fan of Battle Royale. And I don't know, I just could never really get into the Fortnite game. 
but it's a game that I've always admired from the very beginning because it's, in my opinion, it is the only, it still stands alone. It was the first video game to prove that a games as a service model could work. But not only was it the first, but I believe it's still the only games as a service game that has been able to sustain the amount of life it has for this long amount of time. Like, I feel like it's Fortnite and Counter-Strike, like the two games that have somehow been able to to last this long. Counter-Strike for obviously very, very different reasons. But for Fortnite to be able to do what they do, and you see so many other companies try to do it with Apex or Overwatch or Call of Duty, none of them have been able to replicate the magic of Fortnite where somehow at least a minimum of two times a year, Fortnite is able to get our entire industry to stop and pay attention when they have a new season. And they put out a new season and it's always fresh. It always feels very, very interesting. The art is very, very good. Just Epic Games has one of the most talented teams in our industry when it comes to Fortnite and its ability to remain relevant after so much time and not just remain relevant, but really be on top of that mountain. And with this release, it's them, it's Epic Games understanding our industry in terms of we can't fall asleep at the wheel. That's the biggest mistake that so many companies make is that they find success and they say to themselves, okay, this is the formula that worked. And then they stick to that formula right? Epic Games looks at Fortnite very, very differently. When they look at it as a game, it's like, wow, we found success, right? We laid the framework for this game, but it's important for, for, for us to identify our weaknesses, our pain points, and say, what changes can we make to, in order to ensure that not only that we remain relevant, but that we continue to grow. And some of that is looking at other competition and some of that is just gaining feedback, which is something they do really well with Fortnite. But even, you know, even something as like um, first person, for example, right? Or um, adding the no build mode, all that comes from, from feedback. But when you think about something like the Unreal Editor for Fortnite, part of it is this theory that I have about a metaverse. But I think the other part of it is also you're looking at your competition competitors, right? You're looking at Roblox. There was this game, there was this Roblox build that went viral a few weeks ago because someone found out a way, I don't even know how, because I don't know how you make games in Roblox, was able to recreate sort of the feel of that original Call of Duty Modern Warfare multiplayer, but they built it inside of a Roblox game. And that's exactly the type of success that Fortnite is looking to replicate with this Unreal Editor. And I'm sure that they're only going to try to make those tools easier and easier to access. It's one of those things where I would, I'm, I'm trying to take a day to sit down, download it, look through it and see if I'm able to build something with it. But when I look at tutorials, I go, oh man, this is actually a lot more complex Um than I thought it would be, but it also looks like something where, you know, it's, it's just like learning anything else. It's not the same as a regular editor in a video game where everything's just sort of very laid out for you. 
a lot of this Unreal Editor, in order to do really cool stuff, yeah, you're going to have to really sit down, go through YouTube tutorials, and actually learn um, this new skill. But I think it's just really amazing because this is one of those things where people are going to learn this this tool, especially kids, and they're going to use it to get jobs in our industry. So I think it's really fascinating um, to see. But, I mean, overall, Fortnite is really one of those games where and I've said this multiple times before, you don't got to love it, you, but you can't hate it. You have to respect it, right? It's okay if you dislike it, but you have to respect what Fortnite has been able to accomplish and what Epic Games has been able to do with this game. And now our final story deals with Microsoft Activision Blizzard acquisition. We got yet another update uh, about this, I just want to put a reminder out there that this was announced last year, January 18th. So we've been doing this well over a year now talking about this acquisition. And as much as I and so many game other gamers just like, wow, I'm so tired of talking about this. I just want to move away from this, just buy the company so we can stop talking about it. I think that part, what that does is that over time, it lessens the sort of the impact of this deal. And I feel like a lot of people are forgetting how big of a, a deal this really is. We're talking about a $70 billion uh, deal where one of the big three publishers in our industry is able to just absorb the biggest publisher in our industry it remains a big deal, which is why we need to continue talking about it. But before we get to the, the latest update about the acquisition, I wanted to touch on Redfall. So a few weeks back, Arcane announced that online was required for Redfall, even during single player sessions. Now, last week during a Eurogamer interview, game director Harvey Smith announced that they were looking into removing this requirement after negative feedback from fans, but he did not promise that it was doable. I think I think part of his statement was even like, hey, I'm not supposed to actually be promising anything. So I don't know if it was something that he was actually supposed to publicly disclose that they were working on it. I'm going to be honest with you. He probably shouldn't have said anything because uh, the problem now is that unless you're able to guarantee it, there might be some people that are you probably raise their excitement back up for the game of like, okay, cool. You know, maybe at launch it will be online only, but you know, maybe hopefully very soon after launch, they'll be able to remove the requirement. What happens if you and your team figure it out or excuse me, you and your team find out, holy crap, this is already so baked into the game that it's impossible for us to remove it. It was going to cost too much money. So I feel like this was a huge mistake from Mr. Harvey Smith. And he was probably given some PR training right after this interview was done. Um, because I don't think it's something that he should have even mentioned, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, you know, this always online um, thing has, has it's something that's become a very interesting part of our industry because so many games seem to start requiring it. A lot of games do it because of digital rights management. Um, you know, one of the most recent huge launches to require it was the Hogwarts Legacy game, which overall I feel like flew under the radar that online was required to play that game, even though it is 100% a single-player game. There is no multiplayer, as opposed to something like Redfall, which is a hybrid. You can play multiplayer, but you can play through the entire entire game by yourself. 
if you want. And this is kind of one of those things where for me personally, whenever something was is announced as online only, and I hear people on Twitter talking about this is unacceptable, forget it, I'm not going to buy the game anymore. Sometimes I default, and I'm sure a lot of people do the same thing, to what's the big deal? Like most of us have online all the time. It's not really that big of a deal. You know, for me personally, I think within a given year, my internet probably goes out for a few hours during the entire 365 days. But I think, you know, this is kind of one of those things where if you don't see the negative of it, it's it's probably because you're in a very privileged position. You know, sometimes we forget that there are a lot of places that have very bad access to broadband. It's not as steady as, you know, like the city that I live in, which is New York, um, or some people don't have access to high-speed data. So it is kind of one of those things where I, I do understand why a lot of uh, consumers and fans are really upset about it. Because for me, on, on the surface, I always look at it as like, okay, whatever. If my online goes down and I can't play Redfall, I'll just play something else. But on the other hand, I really understand the frustration surrounding it, especially when we're talking about a single-player-only type of game. It really shouldn't exist. Now, what's interesting is that he gave a reason for why the online only requirement was implemented, which is something that I myself was very curious about. He says, quote, it allows us to do some accessibility stuff. It allows us for telemetry. If everybody's falling off ladders and dying, holy shit, that shows up. And so we can go and tweak the ladder code. There are reasons we set out to do that that are not insidious. I'm going to be honest with you. This is a dumbass uh, reason to require online only. Uh, the reason why is because the I'm pretty sure if you put out a poll and you use internal data, you're probably going to come to the conclusion that the majority of players, when they're playing a video game, whether it's single player or online, their console is at that moment connected to the internet, even if they're not using it to transfer data at that moment in time. Same thing applies for PC. Same thing applies for consoles. I, I feel pretty confident in saying that I'm pretty sure you'll have access to enough of a pool of data of players who are playing your game that happen to also be online at the same time. You'll, I'm pretty confident you'll be able to pull enough data from that group of people in order to inform changes that will affect everybody. That's sort of the way that I look at it. So it's something where you can probably suggest online, right? So maybe there's a disclaimer at the beginning of the game that says, hey, while online only is not required, whatever, there's a system in place where we um, are making tweaks in the background to accessibility, to difficulty, blah, 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 whatever. If you are not online, if, you, if your game is not online, you will not have access to those changes. So maybe it's something where you're suggesting to people, hey, maybe once in a while, make sure you're connecting online when you're playing this video game in order to have the most up-to-date, the best experience that we can offer, which is something that our industry does anyway, right? I personally can't remember the last time I bought a video game and did not update it day one. Like, I'm pretty confident everyone knows that if you buy a video game and you don't get that day one update, you're definitely not having the best experience because so many games are shipped nowadays where the game that is on the disc is not, number one, is not actually the entire game. And number two is definitely not the most updated version. 
a lot of uh, games that require that day one patch. I think even recently with Resident Evil 4, one of the big things that that day one patch fixed was the rain that a lot of uh, players, including myself, were complaining about. They very quickly fixed it. It was something that needed to be fixed. So I'm happy that Capcom addressed it. But I think it is part of that day one update, which means that if you don't update the game, it's not going to look as good. And like I said, you're not going to get the best experience. But this, in my opinion, is a very poor excuse to require online only when it could be something where you're basically telling someone, hey, you're probably not going to have the best experience. But then at that point, you're not making it a requirement um, so that if I'm playing a game and for whatever reason my internet goes out, now all of a sudden I cannot play the game. It just doesn't make any sense to make that a requirement. And then one of the big pieces of Redfall news that came out last week was that in a separate IGN France interview, Harvey Smith confirmed something that honestly was pretty obvious but was never confirmed. Of course, Twitter being Twitter, the internet being the internet, everyone made much more of a big deal of it than I feel like it should have been. But in an interview, he said something that I personally believe he was never supposed to say, which is why I guarantee you Harvey Smith got a Zoom invite right after the, the, the day that these two quotes came out. I guarantee you he got a Zoom interview and inside that interview was was uh, PR, <laughs> internal and external, and whoever Harvey Smith's boss was, I guarantee you, because there's absolutely no reason why this man should have said this. Quote, we were acquired by Microsoft and it was a change with a capital C. They came in and they said no PlayStation 5, we're focusing on Xbox, PC, and Game Pass. Now look, this is something that I personally feel should, it's like common sense. It's It's very obvious that this is what happened. You could do the math in your head, right? This company was acquired in 2021. Redfall comes out in 2023. It is impossible this game was built in two years, right? It's just not possible that Xbox walked into those offices in 2021. Maybe uh, they, they went to a meeting. They said, hey, this is a concept we have for our next game, Redfall. Um, it's the next game we're looking into creating and Xbox is like, okay, let's do it. Obviously we own you guys now. So it's going to be Xbox and PC only, right? No, they did the same thing to this game that they did with Starfield that they, I guarantee you, they also did with Hi-Fi Rush from Tango Gameworks It's coming in saying, how far along are you guys? Okay, cool. So I want you to talk to your team because tomorrow all work for PlayStation 5 is going to cease for Starfield all work on Hi-Fi Rush, and all work on Redfall. All of that immediately stops. We are no longer shipping a PlayStation 5 version. I do not need to be in those rooms to tell you guys with 100% certainty that that is exactly what happened. Now, a lot of people made this a much bigger deal than it is because of the stupid plastic box wars that we have to endure every single time that I log into Twitter. Everyone's making this a big deal. Oh, look, Xbox was lying, blah, 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 blah. Xbox and Phil Spencer did not lie. And Xbox actually reiterated what they said previously uh, during the Bethesda acquisition right before it. They echoed something that Phil Spencer said, which is still the truth, even if you want to believe it's a lie. I'm here to tell you that no. What they are telling you is the truth, but what they're giving you is a corporate speak half truth. So they were at, someone asked them for a comment on this statement that Harvey Smith said, and this is what this was Microsoft's response. Quote, 
We haven't pulled any games from PlayStation. In fact, we've expanded our footprint of games that we've shipped on Sony's PlayStation since our acquisition of ZeniMax. And the first two games we shipped after closing were PlayStation 5 exclusives. We did the same, which obviously is Ghostwire Tokyo and Deathloop. We did the same thing since our closing of Minecraft as we extended the reach of that franchise. All the games that were available on PlayStation will require ZeniMax in March 2021 are still available on PlayStation. We have continued to do content updates on PlayStation and PC. We have always said that future decisions on whether to distribute ZeniMax games for other consoles will be made on a case-by-case -case basis. So they did not lie. Now, there were some um, media websites that ran this quote and they said, oh, wait, look, Microsoft saying that Redfall was not pulled from PlayStation. False. That is not what this statement says. This statement is not directly addressing that Redfall quote from Harvey Smith. It starts off with, we haven't pulled any games from PlayStation. They did not specifically specify that we did not pull Redfall from PlayStation 5 development. They did not say, hey, Redfall was never once in development of PlayStation because that would be a lie. But if it was the truth, then Xbox would have said it, especially, especially because of what they're going through right now with their Activision Blizzard acquisition. If it was the truth, they would have publicly said, no, at no point in time was Redfall ever in development for PlayStation 5. Now, when they say we haven't pulled any games from PlayStation, that is the truth, right? They haven't pulled any games from PlayStation. What they mean by what they're saying is that, hey, when we bought the company, we did not go to our teams and say, Fallout 76, Elder Scrolls Online, shut them down. They are no longer going to be available on PlayStation. That's not what they did. The same thing is going to happen when they acquire Activision Blizzard, right? That acquisition goes through. They're not all of a sudden go to, going to go to Blizzard and say, hey, Overwatch 2, we're going to go ahead and remove that from PlayStation. That's not going to happen. So when they say we haven't pulled any games from PlayStation, they're telling the truth. But they're not talking about games that were currently in development. For example, as Starfield is winding up, Elder Scrolls, Elder Scrolls 6 is currently in development. In March 2021, when this acquisition was made, they walked into those offices and they knew that preliminary work was already started on Elder Scrolls 6. And during that point in time, usually you've already made the decision as a company where you're going to ship this game. PlayStation is 100% going to be part of your Elder Scrolls 6 strategy, right? Same thing with Starfield. Now, what they do is they walk in there and they say, hey, guess what? All that work that we're doing on PlayStation, you can just go ahead and delete all that. We're not bringing this game over to PlayStation. That's what I'm saying. The same thing happened with Redfall. I guarantee you the same thing happened with Hi-Fi Rush because it's in the same situation as Redfall. There's no way that Hi-Fi Rush was developed in just two years. That actually under two years. That's impossible. What happened is that they went in, they saw Hi-Fi Rush. They were telling uh, Xbox, yeah, this is our latest game. This is what we're working on. Who knows? Maybe it's something that Xbox was already aware of, right? Because you still need uh, to work with Microsoft for new games. So maybe some people at Xbox knew the existence of Hi-Fi Rush before it was ever, before the acquisition. But there's nothing they can they can say about it, right? But as soon as that acquisition goes in, 
you're walking into those offices, you're saying all work on PlayStation is suspended until we make our decisions. And then from there, you go on a case-by-case basis. This is why we've brought up in the past about Indiana Jones. A lot of people are saying that part of the Indiana Jones game that's being made by Machine Games, a company that Microsoft now owns, part of the contract they made with Lucasfilm in order to attain the license to create that game Part of that license from Lucasfilm was this game must be on multiple consoles. You can't just put it on a single console. So when that game is announced, it is uh, possible that that will also come to PlayStation. That's not because Xbox said, you know, we're going to let PlayStation have Indiana Jones. No, it's because they are forced to because breaking that contract is not very ideal when you're in the middle of the development of that game. It just doesn't really make any sense. So yeah, just wanted to, 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 to get that out there. You know, Xbox owns these companies. They have every right to do what they've done. I've said this plenty of times before. I do not like companies. I do not like the consolidation. I do not personally like, as a gamer myself, companies buying other companies, especially Xbox buying this mega publisher. Personally, for me, I don't like it. But at the same time, I can look at it and say, no, I do not believe that it's anti-competitive. I do not believe that it will stifle or cut PlayStation off at the knees. The reason why I don't like this acquisition is because now it's going to open the doors. That's that's kind of how I look at it. Xbox started this by buying all these studios up as opposed to the way that PlayStation does it, which is what usually does it working with a studio, acquiring them when they're young and building them up. Xbox is like, no, we're just going to look for success. We're going to find these teams. We're going to bring them in. That's what they're doing with Activision Blizzard. Now this purchase, it's almost like by this purchase going through, they're now in a sense forcing Sony's hand. Where Sony's going to continue making the decisions that they're doing, trust me, PlayStation is now probably going to increase the amount of money they give to Square Enix to continue uh, securing those exclusives. But they're probably now internally having discussions about the possibility of going out and acquiring another company, Capcoms, the From Softwares or something like that. Remember, From Software is a game that PlayStation currently has a stake in. So if that's a company that's willing to sell, I guarantee you PlayStation is having those conversations because when you do another, when, when they create another Dark Souls, when they create another Elden Ring, you're definitely not going to allow Xbox to have that. That's where we're going into the future. I personally don't like it. I don't like that we've reached this moment where, you know, the the box that you buy, the games that you've always grown up with in terms of being multi-platform, Elder Scrolls, for example, um, Fallout, for example, now you need it to be in a particular ecosystem in order to play them. I, I don't like it. I've never liked exclusivity. Uh, the only exception I do make is for um, internal studios, right? Like, I don't believe that Zelda should be on PlayStation, right? So it's very different. So earlier last week, within Microsoft's latest response to the CMA, they included a provision that will not only guarantee full feature parity for Call of Duty on PlayStation, they also highlighted the fact that the PlayStation will have more features because of the haptic feedback on the controller. That is something that's PlayStation exclusive. Um, They also said that they believe that a 10-year duration, which is a 10-year contract for Call of Duty, is sufficient um, for is, is sufficient time for Sony as a leading publisher and console platform to develop alternatives 
to Call of Duty. The 10-year term will extend into the next console generation, which is redacted, I guess is what their code name for whatever it is. Moreover, the practical effect, the remedy will go beyond the 10-year period since games downloaded in the final year of the remedy can continue to be played for the lifetime of that console. So what they're basically saying is, hey, we're not only signing up a 10-year deal. Once those 10 years are up, it's not like we're just going to delete Call of Duty off of the PlayStation Store or the discs are going to explode, right? Call of Duty will continue to exist on PlayStation for another decade as long as PlayStation 6 is backwards compatible with PlayStation 5 games, right? Now, one thing that was interesting is when they said that 10 years is sufficient to develop an alternative. That is uh, true and false. It's like 50-50. True in terms of like, yes, within a period of 10 years, I, I, I'm pretty confident that PlayStation could put together a team and create a Call of Duty alternative. That is the key word there, alternative. 10 years, though, is definitely nowhere near enough time to create a Call of Duty competitor. That's where the issue comes in, right? There's no way that's enough time to create a competitor. But within 10 years, I know that you know PlayStation is probably looking internally and saying, is there something we could do to create our, our own shooter? Do we go back and revisit SOCOM and give this to another team? And I'm sure they're, they're, they're probably uh, raised the budget of, you know, the Last of Us Factions multiplayer, for example, in order to, to be able to have something to, some alternative or something to look uh, towards. But I, I don't see a world where, where, you know, PlayStation says, you know, we don't even want Call of Duty and PlayStation anymore. We're going to make our own Call of Duty. We don't want Microsoft to get more money. PlayStation knows that that's not very ideal for them, right? So an alternative, yes. Uh, a competitor, no. That's definitely not what they what they said, right? And then the big piece of news was that the CMA updated their provisional findings after receiving new evidence. While the CMA originally believed that making Call of Duty exclusive to Xbox could be commercially beneficial for Microsoft, it said that new data as received, quote, indicates that the strategy would be significantly loss-making under any plausible scenario. Having considered the additional evidence provided, we have not provisionally concluded that the merger will not result in a substantial lessening of competition in console gaming services because the cost to Microsoft of withholding Call of Duty from PlayStation would outweigh any gains from taking such action. Our provisional view that this deal raises concerns in the cloud gaming market is not affected by today's announcement, and our investigation remains on course for completion by the end of April. So obviously this was a huge step forward for Microsoft with their acquisition. This doesn't mean it's 100% set in stone. I've said since the beginning of this acquisition, I've said on this podcast, that I believe that it will go through. I still do believe that. But we can't sit here and say, oh, that's it. This is 100% a done deal. It's just something where it's like as the months go on, it's going from like 70 to 80 to 90. It's probably like a 95% right now, right? Or something along those lines. And um, yeah, I mean, look, I agree with with uh, the CMA's uh, provisions. I do find it a little bit interesting where they look at it as like it's not commercially beneficial for Microsoft to remove Call of Duty from PlayStation. But does that take into account the future? Because what we have to remember is that Call of Duty has been king for well over a decade. And at this moment in time, there is not a game that's even come close to uh, kicking Call of Duty off the top of, of the first person shooter market. 
Like, yes, there are a lot of games that draw in uh, regular crowds. Apex Legends, Counter-Strike still has a million players uh, every day and stuff like that, right? But when it comes to every single year a video game coming out and then at the end of the year being either number one, two, or three for like the past 14 years, Call of Duty really stands alone. So the thing that I find interesting a lot about all this talk about Call of Duty and these 10-year deals is that it omits the next generation, right? It omits the moment of what happens if before PlayStation 6 comes out, can Xbox look at their numbers and look at the data and look at the growth of Game Pass, look at the growth of cloud, look at the amount of people using their services, and can they then come to the decision of saying, yes, we're going to bleed a little bit by only having this game available on Xbox PC and Nintendo Switch. But I think that we can go forward with not allowing Call of Duty on PlayStation 6. Or is there going to be something put in writing where Xbox is not going to be allowed to do that for the entirety of the Call of Duty, like for the entirety of time that they own the Call of Duty intellectual property? Because I said before that it's 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 understandable Xbox is saying now, which is like, yeah, you know, removing this from PlayStation would do us more harm than good. But once we think about PlayStation 6, right? Once we think about the, the next generation of consoles, it would be extremely beneficial for you as a console manufacturer to say to yourself, like, yeah, maybe it might not be ready for launch. Like, hey, we're launching with Call of Duty only on Xbox. But what happens if in the middle of that 10-year deal or in the middle of, of PlayStation 6's development, maybe it's announced, maybe it's like a year away, you conveniently leak that, hey, there are rumblings within Microsoft that they, they are not interested in signing a new deal with PlayStation, meaning that PlayStation 6 will not have Call of Duty. At that point in time, you really are severely affecting the purchase decision of anyone going into the next generation, where I don't think it's something that's going to be like this huge impact because, look, PlayStation is PlayStation. You're still going to need a PlayStation in order to play a lot of their amazing games. But it would be something, in my opinion, that could affect someone's purchase or maybe at that point get someone to say, you know, what, screw it. I'm just going to buy a PC. Let's be honest. PC is the ultimate console at this point. There was a moment in time where where like you needed a console and a PC. But we've reached a moment now where even like the only one missing is Nintendo. Right. But when it comes to PlayStation and Xbox, so many of their games are coming over to PC. That's like that's it. PC is still the ultimate video game machine. Right. Hot releases for this week. We have March 27th, Nine Years of Shadows, PC. March 28th, Sifu comes to Xbox and Xbox Series X. Crime Boss, Rock A City, PC. MLB The Show 23, PS4, PS5, Switch, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. It is also coming to Game Pass. And then we have The Last of Us Part 1 finally coming to PC. Apparently, Valve's been... Um, advertising it it will be steam deck ready at launch which is pretty cool and then march 30th raven bound for pc time for us to wrap it up stories we didn't have time to get to a god of war inspired video game based on teenage mutant ninja turtles the last ronin comic series was announced uh i was a big fan of the turtles growing up when i was a kid i i guess i've been super out of touch i've never heard of this comic series ever it's apparently a series where it's set in a timeline where only one turtle remains and they wear sort of a black eye band instead of the different colored ones. And they use all four of the weapons. 
And apparently three of the turtles have uh, been killed. So you don't know exactly who this latter turtle is. I won't spoil it for anyone out there. But I'm like, wow, that sounds like a really, really cool premise, especially for a video game. Um, my big negative, in my opinion, for this announcement is that there was no studio announced. So, yeah, you can talk about, hey, it's inspired by God of War. And this sounds like a great idea. But hopefully they find the right studio to execute it. And it's so funny because a friend and I were talking about just like a few weeks back about how much we wished that um, a developer and a publisher would take the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles license very seriously outside of just side scrolling, right? Which is like what we, we really know turtle games to be. And, you know, imagining a four player open world turtles game or something like that, where they really take the IP seriously. That's the one thing that I hope publishers, that's the lesson that they learned from what WB did with Hogwarts legacy, which is that if you put a lot of time, money and care into an intellectual property, you can be, you can get a huge return from it. Academy award nominated screenwriter, John Spates, most known for his work on doom Prometheus and Dr. Strange has been hired to adapt gears of war for the live action Netflix series. I'm very, I remain skeptical about this series. Anything that Netflix has adapted live action is usually crap. And I'm, you know, Gears of War is very, very near and dear to my heart. It's, it's part of my personal top five. So I'm, I'm really hoping they don't screw this up, but yeah, I, I'm really, uh, I'm hoping for the best, but definitely preparing for the worst when it comes to this. And then finally, since it launched in 2017, Xbox has offered new Game Pass users their first month for just a dollar. It seems that promotion has now come to an end. Look, I had a really good run. We're talking about years of this happening. Um, so I can understand why they finally ended this. I think that this is probably is also an indicator that that family plan is finally coming to the United States of America. So we'll have to wait and see for that. Shoutouts of the week. We have a few. First of all, shout out to video game writer Chris Avalon, who recently settled a libel case he brought up against two women who accused him of being a sexual predator, quickly leading to him losing a job at Techland, working on Dying Light 2, and other companies following suit to cut ties. So um, it's great to hear him win that because I I can't imagine how how that must feel uh, in this day and age where everything that anything that happens, it feels like you're very quickly canceled and fired before all the you know data comes to light. You know what I'm saying? Uh, also, shout out to Valve. Upon announcing Counter-Strike 2, CSGO broke its Steam concurrent player count once again with over 1.5 million players online at the same time on March 25th. Shout out to Elden Ring for winning yet another Game of the Year award, this time with the Game Developers Choice Awards. And at those same awards, shout out to John Romero, who received a Lifetime Achievement Award. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and YouTube at Ken Koji for future updates. Once again, I'm Joel, and I will see you all next week.